My name is Laura Dawn, and you're listening to episode number 40 of the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast, featuring a very special conversation with psychedelic pioneer and the founder of MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, Rick Doblin. Our therapeutic approach has been designed is in some ways also different than certain aspects of shamanism, where a lot of times the shaman is the healer. Sometimes shaman takes the drug and the people don't, and they go into trance states or whatever and try to diagnose and do things. But our approach is that we have to empower people to heal themselves. But that's what fundamentally we're doing. And so I think that the um, way in which people take these drugs make a difference. And so, you know, it's better for us to think about them as tools. As, you know, the, the big problem I would say with drug war and with prohibition is that it makes the drugs themselves good or bad drugs. You know, and what it does is we've lost that point that it's the relationship that we establish with the drug. And so I think that this value of psychedelics to help us get out of this life, birth, death cycle and just focus on us as an individual organism to see what we're part of, something more magnificently bigger, including the whole universe, including, you know, eons of time and infinity. And so I think the question, you know, for everybody to address is where are your own wounds and how do you work as deep as you can to heal them. And then from that, you know, work to heal others. And, and when we think about what we need in the psychedelic ecosystem going forward, um, I would say that the most important thing is more therapists. So for people that are so inclined to do that, but I think there's other ways for psychedelic leadership, you know, drug policy reform. There's a lot of important things that can be done there, businesses operating businesses in a more public benefit rather than profit maximizing way. So we need psychedelically informed business people. But uh, there's a lot of ways to be a leader, but I'd say the most important thing is to look inward at your own uh, wounds and issues and then try to find your own particular point of leverage where you have the most leverage. And that's based on where you've come from, who you are, what your interests are. but. I think, um, you know, when I was 18, I managed to say that my point of leverage was focusing on psychedelics. If you're in the psychedelic space or tracking what's been unfolding in the psychedelic movement, then you've undoubtedly heard the name Rick Doblin, who is the founder of the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, also known as MAPS. Now, Rick is a fucking legend, and I have an enormous amount of respect for him and his life's work. I mean, I feel like I've been at this for some time. It's been some decades that I've been exploring and working with psychedelic medicines, and yet he founded MAPS just a couple of years after I was born. So that's how long Rick has been dedicating his life to supporting the psychedelic movement. He's a true pioneer in the psychedelic space. And from my perspective, he's really the epitome of psychedelic leadership, or at least one version of it. 
So I was thrilled and also honored to have Rick come on the show, and I really wanted to just listen to Rick share his life story, which is truly remarkable. And while we were recording, I had this very distinct feeling that I was capturing a slice of psychedelic history in the making. And he shares about the books that he just happened to come across at those perfect ripe moments in time and the people that he met and the journeys he had with psychedelics and the upbringing that he had that so perfectly positioned him to lead the revolution in psychedelic medicine. I mean, Rick was training with Dr. Stanislav Grof, who's also a legend and a pioneer going down in the psychedelic history books. Rick was training with him all the way back in the 70s. And Rick is a visionary, and I love the framework of the visionary archetype, right? He had incredible foresight where he knew he had to strategically approach the roadblocks and the hurdles of which there were so many, specifically created by the government and the ban that was placed on psychedelic research. And he overcame those roadblocks by learning the system so he could change it from the inside, which really led him to receive his doctorate in public policy from Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, where he wrote his dissertation on the regulation of the medical uses of psychedelics and marijuana. So to get the most out of this episode, I want to frame it in a way that makes this the most relatable to you within the context of leadership. So you can sort of zoom out and listen to this episode with this meta awareness, sort of like reading between the lines or, or listening between the notes. And there's this core thread that Rick Doblin weaves between past and future. So we don't only go into the story of Rick's life. The second half of the conversation looks at the future of psychedelic medicine, where Rick shares some really thought-provoking insights, especially when he shares his vision of how he sees the movement in 20 years from now and what he thinks the next wave of psychedelic research will look like. And he also shares some really good advice for people who want to contribute to the psychedelic movement. So in addition to past and future, we also talk about integration. We talk about LSD and MDMA and the difference between the two. And Rick shares about the healing of trauma and PTSD and the phase three trials that they're doing at MAPS and what he expects to happen after these phase three trials are completed. So throughout this entire conversation, there's this thread that weaves between and bridges the past with his vision of the future. And it's a powerful narrative that's so compelling and inspiring. And when he talks about it, you can really feel his sincerity and his passion. And it's essentially the narrative that psychedelics are not only powerful tools to help facilitate healing, allowing us to realign with our wholeness that is really essentially our birthright, but that these are tools for also building bridges between people who are divided. 
and he holds a vision for a more harmonious chapter of human history where we can leverage these powerful substances to heal ourselves and also to think differently so we can find novel solutions to the incredibly complex challenges that we face. And it's so apparent how much he cares about this vision. And it's a narrative and a vision that is near and dear to my heart as well. And so I'm highlighting here that the narratives and the stories we tell ourselves and the stories that we share with others play such a significant role in how we lead, whether we're leading a party of one or not, right? That these narratives inform the actions that we take and how we inspire others to align with the vision that we're holding, And even though we're not talking about this in our conversation per se, I mean, it's so evident that Rick is really good at that. He embodies visionary leadership. And look at what he's accomplished as a result. And I highlight this so you can listen to this conversation through that lens of what embodied visionary leadership can look like. And I think this will help you get even more out of this episode and this conversation. And I invite you to reflect on the narratives that you are weaving and ask yourself what you really care about. Just take a moment to really feel that for a second. What do you really care about? What do you value? And what is the vision that you are holding and that you're consciously moving towards in your life? And is that in alignment with what you really care about and what you value? Because when our vision is in integrated alignment with our values, this is what fuels our passion. It's the stamina we need. It's the recipe for grit and intrinsic motivation. And this is what gives our lives purpose and meaning by contributing to something that we really care about. It comes down to getting clear on your why, right? For anyone who's familiar with Simon Sinek's work, know your why and then build a narrative around your why that inspires you and that then ripples out and inspires those around you. And when you know your why, you also know your way. It illuminates your path forward. And of course, everyone's path is going to look different. Even Rick says there's so many ways to contribute to the psychedelic movement, especially right now. And Rick is approaching this from a very Western medical perspective. That's his particular lens. And that's not to say it's right or wrong. That's just the path that he chose and that he resonates with. But there's room for everyone and for a blending of modalities as well. And there's this incredible convergence happening right now between Western science and shamanic wisdom and Eastern philosophy And I think we all need to embody a little more humility in how much we just don't know, right? When we look at psychedelics, for example, through the lens of Western science, that's just one small perceptual viewplane. And there's so much more that we're missing. And the same can be said for whatever angle, whatever lens we choose to work with and view psychedelics through. 
And there's value in a lot of different frameworks and perspectives and modalities and lineages. And there's space for everyone here. This is a yes and kind of situation. And we can learn to embody a little more of that sense of inclusivity. And actually, I just want to say one more thing about this. As I mentioned in this conversation, we are living through such polarized times and we are witnessing a lot of division, even in the psychedelic space. And so as I mentioned in this conversation with Rick Doblin, we are living through such polarized times and we're witnessing a lot of division. And, you know, it's kind of mind blowing to see that there's even so much division and judgment that gets hurled around in the psychedelic space. And so this is an invitation for everyone listening, especially for those of us who aspire to embody our own version, our own definition of psychedelic leadership. Let's do better and really try to embody more open-mindedness. Let's get more curious and let's try to embody a greater sense of open-heartedness and try to defer judgment. And may we learn to communicate with a little more kindness and humility because nobody knows the whole picture, right? And may we walk and carry ourselves as examples as we learn to navigate this space with more grace and humility and integrity. And honestly, I'm saying this to myself just as much as I'm expressing this to you. And so I'm really holding that prayer for all of us. Let's do better. And I have a lot of people reaching out to me these days, asking me for advice on which path they should take, how they should contribute in the psychedelic space. And I always say, you know, listen to your intuition, find an approach that works for you and pave your own path forward and create peer-to-peer support networks and look for elders, look for mentors that can support you on your path. And stay true to your heart and cultivate that relationship with the knowing that your plant teacher also is here to offer you guidance on this path. And as we all see, there's such a flurry of people rushing into the psychedelic space, especially right now. And what Rick is also showing us is that slow and steady wins the race. And so this is just a reminder that this is an unfolding journey It takes years and decades to refine our leadership and our space holding qualities if we choose to hold space in these ways or to help catalyze real meaningful change. And we never really arrive, so to speak, until we actually do arrive at the end of our journey, at the altar of our own death. And when we do arrive there in that very significant moment of time, may we be able to look back and say that we were in service to something we really, truly cared about, whether it's in the psychedelic movement or not, right? And to approach however we want to contribute to this movement from a place of inspired servant leadership, And so if we want to contribute to a more beautiful world our hearts know is possible, we need to learn how to embody that in order to create it. Okay, wow, 
thanks for tuning into that transmission. (laughs) Just briefly, one more thing before we dive in. I know it's last minute notice, but I'm going to be in New York in just a couple of days attending the Horizons Conference. So if you can swing it in your schedule and in your budget, I would love for you to join me at the conference and witness an exceptional lineup of speakers. I'd love to connect and meet you in person. And I also have a link for a discount on that ticket price. So I'll include that link in the show notes. And as per usual, I'm going to leave you with a song like I do in every episode. And this song is called Strongest Medicine by Kevin Paris and Casey Kelmanson. I thought that this was just such a perfect song, actually, for this whole conversation that I had with Rick Doblin. And it comes off of their album called Say Love. And I love this whole album, especially the the song on the album that's also called Say Love. Like, definitely listen to that one, too. And I'll put links in the show notes if you'd like to purchase this song, where you can also find a link to receive my four free curated playlists for psychedelic journeys and also my free eight-day microdose course if you are feeling called to cultivate a safe microdosing practice. And I'm recording this intro a couple of days after this celebratory day of gratitude. And it's it's really nice to connect with and celebrate gratitude every day in our lives. And so I just want to say thank you so much for tuning into this podcast. It's doing remarkably well, and it's because of you. And so thank you for continuing to join me and for celebrating episode number 40 with me. And I just want to express that I am so profoundly grateful for all of the pioneers in the psychedelic space who have quite literally paved the path before us and have made it a little easier for many of us to step out and contribute to the psychedelic movement in the ways that we feel most inspired to. And if you have been touched by or moved by this podcast, I would so appreciate it if you could express your gratitude by leaving me a review on iTunes. All right, without any further ado, here is my very special conversation with the one and only Rick Doblin. Oh, it's so good to see you. How are you doing? Pretty well. I mean, there's so much growth and change happening. It's kind of hard to cope with it all. (laughs) But it's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. I'm so just in awe of your path and all that has been unfolding, which seems to be exponentially. But, you know, under the surface, you've been really plugging away at this for so many years, decades at this point. I was thinking that it would be really nice to start with your personal psychedelic origin story and how your uh-huh. earlier experiences, your your first experiences, how those might have influenced your educational path and eventually the founding of MAPS, which for mm-hmm. those people listening who don't know what MAPS stands for, it's the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And I think many of us really just want to hear your story, Rick. So please just take all the time you need to share that unfolding timeline. (laughs) That's a dangerous thing to ask me because I can go on and on about my story. Um, But I I will share that, um, you know, my first experiences with psychedelics were when I was 17 and 18 years old. And before then, and that was in 1971 and 1972. And before then, I really had mostly believed the propaganda. 
that if you took LSD five or six times, that meant that you were certifiably insane. And that if you did LSD a bunch, that meant that it destroyed your chromosomes and you'd have deformed babies. And that, you know, all of it was a hallucination and a delusion and there was nothing real there. And that it was all about uh, catalyzing schizophrenia or psychosis. And um, so I, I grew up, you know, my parents didn't even drink alcohol really. So I, my dad was a doctor and um, a pediatrician, but we had this uh, drawer filled of drugs that, um, you know, the detail people give uh, physicians all these free drugs. And we had this drawer filled of drugs. And his basic attitude was, don't take any of them. You know, you'll get better on your own. You know, I'm dubious of what I learned in medical school and stuff. So it was really politics that got me into psychedelics more than anything else. Um, and, I, and I realized, you know, in retrospect, that I had, um, you know, all the possible advantages that you could have to think that um, that one was safe and loved and taken care of. Um, and then overlaid on that was this sense of incredible vulnerability from being Jewish, being raised on stories of the Holocaust, born in 53, right after, um, not too long after the World War II. Um, so I felt like, you know, I had this, privileged position in America. And this was the height of American power. So this idea of American exceptionalism, you know, then I'm Jewish, so the chosen people. So on top of it, I'm the firstborn male child, you know, so I had that uh, special position in my family. Um, I'm white, you know, so and my family was well off. My dad was doctor. So I had basically everything going for you that could, um, you know, really provide a sense of security. But what I was able then to do with that was to really take as a real thing the fact that uh, the Holocaust did occur and that it could reoccur and that people have this capacity to do these things, even from the most civilized country, you know, we thought in Europe, you know, outcomes, you know, these horrors. Um, but shortly after that, it wasn't just my understanding of what happened in World War II, but it was my um, training in America with the Cold War with Russia and this idea now all of a sudden that we could launch all these nuclear weapons with each other. We could blow up the world. And we were taught in school, um, you know, duck and cover is the thing, you know, duck under your school desk. And, you know, kids these days have active shooter drills and that's pretty terrifying, but it's worse even to think, oh my God, the whole world could blow up. And we could be destroying civilization and hundreds of millions, billions of people could die. And it just seemed crazy, you know, that, that the humanity could do that. Um, you know, but it was always initially the Germans then the Russians, you know. And then in my later teens, when I was 16 and 17, and I had to confront the fact that um, I was going to have to register, you know, potentially drafted to go to Vietnam, then it's now my own country doing things. So it's not like the evil's all out there, you know, that then it became that way. And so it just really led me to um, think that with the security that I had, that I was sort of trained by my parents to work on deeper threats. And the way that I tried to interpret that was that a lot of these deeper threats come from dehumanizing others and denying them their place on earth, even, you know, and, and that, 
I started thinking about this ability of people to believe the big lie, which we see now in America. Um, you know, Trump being a master of the big lie. And now I have a much better understanding of how Hitler took power in Germany, actually, the way people are willing to give, go along with stuff ever more extreme and to justify ever more stuff. So it was kind of this terrifying thought about how people's minds and way that we justify things, that was the problem. And so I also grew up during this time of um, going to the moon in the 60s. You know, so this idea that technology can do miraculous things um, was clearly evident. And so the, the thought came to me more and more that really we have the technical capabilities of providing enough food and shelter for everybody in the world. It's not a lack of technology. It's a lack of will and a lack of care and a lack of the sense that we're all in it together that is the fundamental problem. Hmm. Uh, you know, Einstein had said that the splitting of the atom has changed everything except our mode of thinking, and hence we drift towards unparalleled catastrophe. What shall be required if mankind is to survive is a whole new mode of thinking. And Einstein was very mystical, very spiritual, not in a literal fundamentalist way, but very spiritual. And so I, I think that this mode of thinking that he was talking about was um, a more spiritual, mystical sense of connection. You could even say on this atomic level, how you know energy, we're all the same. Now, also, Carl Jung had said something that was um, shattering, you could say. This was now in 1959, um, a few years before he died. Um, what he talked about was that, um, that the greatest risk to humanity is humanity itself. <laughs> and that we need to study the psyche more, and that we know too little of ourselves. And that he ended up this quote by saying, we are the source of all coming evil. Which, when you think about it, is just a terrifying thought that it's, you know, we don't have really significant predators. You know, I mean, we can have, you know, lions and tigers and snakes stuff kill a bunch of people, but we don't really have significant predators as a species but we're destroying our own environment and we're killing off other animals and we're really changing the climate and we're developing weapons of mass destruction that are ever more powerful, that really we are the source of all coming evil. So that led me more and more to this trying to understand psychology. But I did have this view that psychedelics were um, somehow or other not helpful. In fact, beyond not helpful, very harmful. But what changed it all for me was um, I was studying Russian and I was learning about the other. And uh, so I took four years of Russian in high school. And when I was um, 16 years old, after my junior year of high school, my parents sent me to Russia. And I spent the whole summer there learning language and meeting Russians. There were 60 other high school students from the US, 1970, sort of high to the Cold War. And it was, it was a pretty amazing experience because I remember walking with um, one of the um, women that was... Um, like a, a sort of waitress at, at, at where we were staying. We went for a walk and I was like, where's your horns? You know, you're supposed to be wanting to kill all of us. You know, you're, you're, you're just like a normal person, you know? And then it was just this idea of ideologies and conflict. It, it helped me understand that humans are humans all over the world. And 
when I came back from that, this fellow in Rush in my Russian class um, gave me a book to read, and um, I loved it. It was a fantastic book, and I handed it back to him, and he said, "Do you realize that the author of this wrote part of this while he was under the influence of LSD?" And I said, "That's not possible. You know, LSD can't produce anything this great." And he said, "No, no, no. Check it out. It's true." And it was true. It was uh, Ken Kesey's "One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest." Mm. And that was. I said, how could something so great that's also about the power of the individual to stand up to the system? You know, how, how could something so great come from LSD? So maybe I was um, sold a bill of goods. And then I saw also how LSD was more used by the, the Beatles and others talking about uh, motivating people to protest the Vietnam War and you know work on environmental rights and women's rights and civil rights and all of this. So I started seeing the political implications of the psychedelic experience. And that's what finally got me into taking it. And so when I first was interested in taking it um, at New College in Sarasota, Florida, this experimental college that had this, uh, I mean, I'm so lucky when I think about it. Um, but, you know, I started this school in 1971. The school actually took in its first class in 65, a big experimental school. Um, it was small. It had only about 350 people, but you could create your own curriculum, no grades. Everybody had to do a senior thesis. It was, you know, and I, and I was sort of moving away from traditional routes. I was um, planning to uh, go to jail uh, to be a draft resistor for Vietnam. I wasn't a conscientious objector because I'm not against all wars. I wasn't going to pretend I had bone spurs like Trump did. I'm not going to go to run away to Canada. I was going to go to jail. And you know, for my parents, that was like, okay, but you're never going to be able to be a real job. You know, you're not going to be able to be a doctor, lawyer, whatever, because you're going to be a felon. So I was like, all right, you know, I'm just going to have to accept that. And then I get to new college and they have this uh, all night dance parties with psychedelics that they didn't put in the brochure. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> this is really great. Uh, and they had a, a culture of people doing their own deep, profound exploration with psychedelics. And back then, a standard um, blotter hit of acid was 250 micrograms, mm. which is kind of like an existential experience. Now they're around 70 or 80 or something like that micrograms. So you have to take three of them to be what they were before. Um, but also they had um, at the swimming pool, there was actually a woman who, a teacher, uh, an older teacher who had studied with Carl Jung directly. Mm. And she was teaching Jungian psychology and her husband uh, donated a big Olympic-sized swimming pool to the, the school. And it somehow or other had turned into a nudist colony. So I was this very shy boy from high school. You know, barely could talk to girls. Now, here I am at this nudist colony. And there's all these all-night parties and support for psychedelics. And, and so I was reading the Whole Earth Catalog. And uh, the next big book that influenced me was by John Lilly. And it was... Uh, programming and metaprogramming in the human biocomputer. It was about his work developing the flotation tank, but also doing LSD inside the tank mm. and trying to describe how he thinks, how his brain works as if it's a computer, the human biocomputer. So friends and I developed these isolation environments and we started doing psychedelics in them. And um, But I had very um, limited emotional range, you could say. Um, and I wasn't able to really let out the emotions that were being generated by these LSD trips. Also, um, 
somebody came by with half a pound of mescaline, um, which I bought all of. And uh, friends and I then did loads and loads of mescaline, which I love. So we did a lot of mescaline, a lot of LSD. And um, this idea also was, now this is again, 71, 72. So this is after the backlash to the 60s. Psychedelic research is being wiped out. The idealism, the hippies have has failed. We've got Nixon, the war in, war in Vietnam is raging. Nixon declares war on drugs. All of this is going on in kind of a, a grim way. And here I was, you know, waking up to what had happened, but but feeling like um, I needed to purify myself. That, that you know, that, that a lot of the flaws of the counterculture were internal rather than just all external. So I kept doing more and more higher doses of LSD or higher dose of mescaline, and I would get stuck sooner and sooner. One point where I actually felt like, um, like a, you know, like a light bulb where the electricity, the reason we get light from a light bulb is you get electricity goes in, but then it's resisted and then it turns into heat and, and light and you get this sort of light. So I felt that my brain, I was, I was resisting the LSD experience and therefore my brain was heating up and I actually felt um, it, that it was starting to melt and I had like a nasal drip and I'm like, oh my God, my brain is leaking out of my head and it's because I'm so scared and I'm resisting and I can't go any further and it, it was kind of a, that's my lowest point. <laughs> that's my worst trip. Um, but I felt like I needed to keep doing it. And it just, I couldn't get past these blocks. So I went to the guidance counselor at school. And again, I got so lucky. This guidance counselor handed me a book to read. And this is like, I'd say the third key book that changed my life. And it was Realms of the Human Unconscious, Observations from LSD Research by Stan Groff. I read it and I loved it. I wasn't fully aware of the psychedelic research that had been done and how much of it had been done and how much we'd learned. And also how Stan talked about all the different layers of the unconscious, including this sort of mystical experience, the sense of connection. And I thought this experience is the antidote to genocide, to environmental destruction, to racism, sexism, all of this. If we feel our connections with everybody, uh, and not just hear it, but feel it, then when we we can appreciate differences and not be scared of differences or not feel that um, you're you're not us, you're them. You know, you're, you're, you know. So it felt like this mystical experience and also the therapy that can go along with it had profound political implications. And then this guidance counselor, unbelievably, knew Stan Groff. And he had his address and the book, Stan's book wasn't published till 1975. And I got a copy in 1972, a manuscript copy. Wow. And uh, unbelievable. Yeah. So then I wrote a letter to Stan. Now I'm this confused 18 year old and um, he's like MD, PhD, leading the research at Hopkins, but it's being wiped out. And he writes me back and he says um, he's giving a workshop in the summer of 1972 with Joan Halifax, who he was just married mm -hmm. with. And so I hitchhiked across America and dropped out of college and told my parents, I'm going to drop out of college. I'm going to study LSD. I want you to pay for it. And I told them that it's their fault because my bar mitzvah didn't turn me into a man. It was nothing. <laughs> and here, all of a sudden, this LSD is like what my bar mitzvah should have been and helping me ask all these existential questions. So my parents eventually agreed, anyway, that they would pay for this. So... Anyway, that, that's kind of the origin story of my getting into psychedelics. And it wasn't until 10 years after that that I learned about MDMA.
Mm. I mean, it's kind of amazing that we can think of classic psychedelics as sort of like visionary compounds. I mean, so did you feel like the foreshadowing, did you have experiences where you really felt like this was going to be your life's work? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was reading Stan's book when I was 18 that I said, I'm going to devote my life to psychedelics, Mm. to my own therapy, to becoming a psychedelic therapist, trying to bring the field back. Mm. Because I really thought it's a crazy world and people are very much, it felt like a, a, yeah, Cold War, I guess is the way to say it, is that humanity is really excellent at killing each other Mm. for different ways. And it just felt like this was something. I was about to go to jail, I thought, for being a draft resistor, but what, what could I hold on to? What could I contribute? What what would get us out of all these dire situations? Mm. And it felt to me like this um, going beyond ego into this collective. Now, it's interesting that a lot of the astronauts who went to space and saw the Earth from space said exactly the same thing. Mm. You know, that, that seeing how it's all one planet and you don't see the borders or the country the countries or the religions or the, you just realize we're this life form that's grown on this one planet in this enormous universe and that we have so much more in common with each other and that this overview effect they call it was spiritualized a bunch of these astronauts in really important ways mm. and so i think it was really when i understood that and also understood that psychedelics could help produce the similar kind of sense of it's all connected. And it would be a way to have people go deep into their traumas and work through them. But I thought, okay, this is, you know, I, I have this support from my family. Um, somehow it seemed so obvious to me that I thought that thousands of people would have devoted their lives to trying to bring back psychedelics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because it just seemed like, God, what else can you do? I mean, we don't need more technology. As I said, from what I said, I mean, Technology can solve a lot of problems. Um, you know, I've, I've done a couple of tech talks at Google and Google, they talk about their moonshots, but none of them address this fundamental problem of humans killing other humans and destroying the world and having these, you know, resistance to reality and denying reality. And mm. you know, so it's, it's the problems are in the psyche. Right. And so that's what really made me at age 18 to think, yeah, this is, the psyche, you know, and Stan had also written, you know, that LSD, you know, widely used as like the um, microscope for biology or the telescope to astronomy. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this is the tool, the same way that Galileo died under house arrest and Father Bruno, who believed that the earth wasn't the center of the universe, so the church burned him at the stake for saying that. But okay, these tools that help us see deeper, sometimes the tools themselves get criminalized, not because they're bad, but because of the, they help people see certain things that go against the status quo. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and then once I realized how much um, propaganda I had believed, you know, that there was one study I read where they um, were looking at um, chromosome damage from LSD, and they they looked at a bunch of people, and Timothy Leary participated, but not under his own name, anonymously, and then it came out that his chromosomes were fine, mm. and. You know, but even still, the, the chromosome damage that they saw doesn't relate to birth defects. It, it was, you know, you, you get chromosome damage from having a fever or from, it, it just was this enormous amount of propaganda. So, yeah, I felt like at age 18, this is what I've devoted myself to do. That's amazing. And luckily, 
now I'm 67 years old. I'll be 68 in a week. So basically um, almost 50 years. And it still makes sense to me. That, that's what I'm like. How did that 18 year old have such a good idea? That's amazing. And I, I want to get into MDMA in a moment and how that differs from classic psychedelics like LSD and psilocybin and DMT. And I know this is actually a huge question that I kind of just want to throw at you here, but I'm so curious, like, I'm sure you've had time to contemplate this because I've had extraordinary experiences with unity consciousness, like we are all one interconnected experiences on LSD as well. And it's kind of miraculous that they facilitate that experience. And I mean, why do you think that is that they give us insight into this sense of oneness and unity consciousness the way that they do? Well, well, first off, why does it work for us? But why has it worked for thousands of years? Mm. These are not new experiences that people have. And we know that the foundation of Western culture, the Greeks, from you know 1600 AD to 396 um, or 1600 BC to 396 AD was the Eleusinian Mysteries, longest running mystery ceremony that we know of for almost 2,000 years, and it had a psychedelic drug potion, kikdiem, that people drank. Mm-hmm. So why do they do this? I think that as a individual organisms, um, you know, we have this ego, this sense of uh, unique identity that's focused a lot on how to keep us alive. What are our various needs? How do we address them? And so we kind of are separated from the collective or from our birthright, you could say, or what's gonna happen after we die into this sort of um, skin encapsulated ego. I think it was Alan Watts that talked about that. Um, But that's this organism that's designed to survive. And so this ego is something that helps us refer everything to us as an individual. You know, and what do I, but, but you lose track of how we're really part of this big collective. You know, we're more like uh, ants in an anthill than, you know, an independent, you know, ant who made it on his own or whatever. Um, so I, I think that the way that psychedelics have this ability to kind of reduce the focus on the ego and move to, and, and this again, we'll talk about is different than MDMA, but the classic psychedelics kind of knock out that sense of self, but then it opens you up to seeing the bigger self, the self with a capital S. Mm-hmm. You know, the, 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 one time in one of my LSD experiences uh, early on, I had this um, insight that um, in my deepest, most private sense, which is where, you know, when you close your eyes and you're kind of speaking to yourself, you know, you're perfectly comfortable in bed or in a flotation tank or whatever, you're, you're completely isolated. You close your eyes and you're thinking to yourself. And I was realizing I am thinking to myself, but I'm doing it in English. And I didn't develop English. I mean, thousands of millions of people developed this language and people, you know, for tens thousands of years, did we develop languages like this? So how do we communicate so that even in my most private parts, I am ben- I'm only a small piece of this big picture that made it so I could even do this. Mm. And so I think that this value of psychedelics to help us get out of this life, birth, death cycle and just focus on us as an individual organism to see what we're part of, something more magnificently bigger, including the whole universe, including, you know, eons of time and infinity and you know, and, and 
you know, connections in, in so many different ways that, you know, now we could understand from more modern neuroscience, this idea of the default mode network being this sense of uh, brain structures that kind of orients you as your own ego, your own self and psychedelics weaken that network in the brain. And then you can see more. So I think it's kind of serendipitous discoveries that people had over the centuries, over the millenniums, that certain plants, certain substances knock out this. Other plants have medicinal properties of all sorts of kinds. Mm. And it's that humans have recognized that we need the bigger picture, not just, we need the little picture too. And so I, I think the paradox and what I'd like to kind of mention here, maybe at this point, which is that two things go together that are seemingly paradoxical. One is the more we realize how we're part of everything, the more we can be uniquely ourselves, that this individuation and who we are from our own specific cultures and families and our own genetics and our own capabilities, that we can become more uniquely ourselves as we know how we're more fundamentally connected with everybody else. And I think there is that concern that when you talk about uh, how we're all connected, it's all one, then we devalue the ways that we are uniquely ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, I think that that's, and, and I think there's some spiritual traditions that also devalue life itself. And it's all about getting off the wheel of creation and you know, having these mystical experiences and then being enlightened and then leaving. Or, you know, it just seems like there's, there's a lot of selfishness in that as well. So I just think that we've come to um, fear in a way, um, the sense of oneness for fear that we'll lose ourselves. But I think we will gain mm. more appreciation. And the more you see that you're, we're all connected, the more you can appreciate differences and you, the more you can become your own self. So I think that's an important thing that they, they move in parallel, more individuation and more sense of unity. Mm. I mean, I really just love the way that you frame the whole narrative and your perspective seems to be fundamentally working with psychedelics as bridge builders. And we live in this time of such massive division. And it's interesting to think that like millions and millions and millions of people at this point have had psychedelic experiences and yet there's more hatred and there's more division still than ever before. But it's like, what is it really going to take? And then we also see people in the medicine community so divided, you know, people who work with MDMA are, you know, like have judgment against the ayahuasca people and the ayahuasca people have judgment against the, you know, ketamine therapy people. I mean, it's like ridiculous. And it's kind of mind blowing though, to see the way that even people in the psychedelic space in the medicine community are still, you know, not necessarily embodying that sense of non-judgment and, you know, really building those bridges. That's so important to say. And so I think that leads us to this other point, which is that culture is more important than the psychedelic experience. So, you know, we talk about set and setting, you know, so let's talk about ayahuasca, for example. So in order to survive, the domination from the Western cultures and Catholicism, the Western religions, the ayahuasca churches in South America, Brazil, Peru, they're called syncretic religions. They've had to accommodate to the dominant narrative that was trying to kill their shamans. And, you know, we saw the conquistadors killing the um, people that worked with mushrooms and peyote, that they were the center of their communities. And so they saw them as sacrilegious. And so 
I think what we've seen is that these syncretic religions have had to adopt certain kind of themes, you could say, you know, heroes, uh, messiahs, angels and saints and holidays in order to survive. So some of these ayahuasca churches are homophobic, patriarchal, hierarchical. You know, they don't necessarily embody the values that I'm, I'm trying to talk about completely. But they, they, they so, so that's where this idea that society and the culture is more important in molding the experience than the psychedelic itself that it can be moved in different ways. And you can end up from these experiences still retaining certain kind of prejudices mm. or certain kind of views. Like there was, you know, very few women shamans in these ayahuasca churches. Mm. It was mostly the males. Now it's, it's changing, but, um, you know, very homophobic, as I said, and very hierarchical. So there is this um, hope that I, I should say that is um, not naive it's it's not just take the psychedelic and you will have these experiences and everything will be better it's it's we have to create the social contexts whereby these tools can be the most beneficial mm. i would say the ways in which our therapeutic approach has been designed is in some ways also different than certain aspects of shamanism where a lot of times the shaman is the healer Sometimes shaman takes the drug and the people don't, and they go into trance states or whatever and try to diagnose and do things. But our approach is that we have to empower people to heal themselves. Mm -hmm. That's what fundamentally we're doing. We're helping people heal themselves. We don't use the word guide. We're not their guides. We don't know where they need to go. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're they're unconscious. They know where they need to go more than we do. Mm -hmm. We're sort of accompanying them and we're familiar with the territory, we're familiar with certain strategies, and we try to support people, though, to really understand that they have to make the choices to heal. They have to feel things that have been previously overwhelming. They have to let out certain feelings and reevaluate their lives. And so I think that the um, way in which um, people take these drugs make a difference. And so, you know, it's better for us to think about them as tools, as you know, the, the big problem, I would say, with drug war and with prohibition is that it makes the drugs themselves good or bad drugs. Mm-hmm. You know, and what it does is we've lost that point that it's the relationship that we establish with the drug. Mm-hmm. That's the most important thing. And the best example of this from an FDA point of view is the drug thalidomide. So thalidomide was something that was used in Europe in the 50s and, and 60s for morning sickness for women. And it had these horrible birth defects that it would cause with withered limbs or or missing limbs or just incredible. The the only person that ever at the FDA that ever won the Presidential Medal of Honor honor, was this woman, Frances Kelsey. In the early 60s, she blocked thalidomide from coming into the United States. And so she saw these safety signals and she saved thousands and thousands of women from, and babies from being born deformed. Um, all right, so that is the quintessential bad drug. But decades later, thalidomide is now a medicine approved by the FDA and it, it shrinks blood vessels. It's good for certain kind of cancer tumors, for leprosy. And there's a whole host of um, policies that have been 
developed to make sure that thalidomide never gets to a pregnant woman again. Hmm. So there's education for the pharmacists, there's education for the prescribers, there's education for the patients, there's a patient registry to track all the patients. So all of this, you know, has developed these new ability for FDA to um, customize their policies for the risks of each particular drug. But it just emphasizes that there's no such thing as a good drug or a bad drug. That's how it's used. And I think hopefully we will get past our misguided drug war, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. get back. So I think the relationships are are key. And, And I think in a therapeutic setting or even in a religious setting, the more that we encourage people to explore themselves, rather than try to impose a a dogma or a therapeutic approach on them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you think we're still in the early days of the development of curriculum around integration? Um, I think we still have a lot to learn. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I I think, uh, and and again, you point to something really important is that you can have this experience, but what do you bring back from it and how does it affect your baseline? Mm -hmm. So we could say that that one of the main differences between recreational use of psychedelics and therapeutic use or spiritual use even is that we're recreational use. You're going for the experience itself and that's it for therapeutic or religious use. You're going for the experience as a way to bring back something to change your baseline. Mm-hmm. And that's the integration process right. that we're talking about. And so I, I think there's a lot that we could learn about how to, properly integrate psychedelic experiences because many of them are very different than the way we normally think. They bring up uh, thoughts that we've not had or not permitted ourselves. You know, people often do want to change aspects of their life after they have these experiences to get kind of a new perspective. Um, And so we really need to be reflective of how we anchor it. The other part, just from a practical point of view, is that the therapeutic interventions are very labor intensive initially, way, way more so than just giving somebody a pill. So it's initially expensive. And the only way we're going to get insurance companies to pay for it is if the effects are durable. And that's where we get back to the integration. We need the integration to make the effects durable. And there's even something else, even more amazing, I would say, and important, which is that what we've shown in our studies in phase two and in um we, we haven't done this fully yet in phase three, but in phase two, what we showed is that at the two month follow-up, people are doing really pretty well, but, and that's where we stop all of our interventions. You know, the two month follow-up is the, after the last experimental session, that's the primary outcome measure. Then we're done. People can do whatever they want. And we test them again at 12 months. And what we show is that people are improved. Their PTSD symptoms have gone down not just faded and they've relapsed, but they're getting better on average on their own after we're not doing anything. And so I think that's this idea that not only are we helping them to integrate what happened, but they're learning how to deal with further difficult memories or traumas, and they've been empowered to figure out how to heal themselves, and that healing work keeps on going. Mm -hmm. So I think the more that we can learn about um, integration, um, the more that we will be able to mainstream this to wider and larger numbers of people with insurance coverage. Mm-hmm. I think that's the case. So, yeah, there's, there's um, mm-hmm. a lot more. Could, could you say, do you think, you know, what are the lessons from integration that might 
be ahead of us to still learn? Or? Oh, I think there's so much. I think it's like an emergent space, which brings with it a lot of opportunity and exploration, but also, you know, a lot of responsibility. And um, yeah, and so I kind of want to keep tracking this timeline. So at that point, you know, we we paused the story around okay. your your LSD yeah. journeys, and then you had your first MDMA journey ten years later. And then let's just segue okay. so we can come full circle to the trials that you're doing with Maps. Okay, thank you, Laura. All right, so so what happened was that um, when I was doing all this LSD and um, masculine and others, and went to the guidance counselor. Um, I tried to do the most deep psychological work that I could with this idea that I needed to kind of, you know, improve myself, become enlightened. The world was crazy and the 60s had crashed and burned. And so after I did this workshop uh, with Stan and, and Joan Halifax, I did a month long encounter group in the mountains of California. Uh, which was very um, inspiring and enlightening gestalt therapy a lot. It was very helpful. Um, and one of the people that was in there also was a practicing primal therapist. So we don't hear much about primal therapy today, but it was this idea that there's birth trauma, that the process of being born is a template for how we see the world afterwards. And that, you know, from being sort of floating in your mother's womb and, and everything self-contained to then having to make this perilous journey to be born where you don't know if you're going to survive and it's threatening and everything's changing and no way out and all, all of this, that um, this idea that primal therapy is um, you get back to these original birth traumas and then you can release them. And then, you know, that will make your life a lot better. And so um, I went and did a three week primal therapy intensive where I was isolated for three weeks. I would get out for like one hour a day to go to a soundproof padded room with the therapist and scream and, try to, you know, get out this trauma. And, and at one point, because we'd met the therapist in the uh, this encounter group, um, you know, he sat for me for when I did LSD as with the primal therapist. And this, you know, and then he asked me at a later point to sit for him while he did LSD. Um, but I did the most profound in-depth work that I could imagine. And at the end, I wasn't where I wanted to be. And I would say it, the fundamental failure was that I didn't appreciate the need for integration. I, I just had this delusion that the more drugs you take, the better and faster you evolve, that you're, you're, you know, this is where you do the work. I didn't really understand at the time how important it was to be integrated. So I did the most difficult stuff I could do, the most in-depth, and it wasn't what I had hoped for. And then I was lost. I didn't know what else to do. And I actually, I went back home to uh, my parents. I'm the oldest of four kids. And, you know, so I was a big failure to launch. You know, here I was, the oldest going to college, and I'm confused, dropped out, you know, doing LSD and don't know what I'm doing. And so I just sat home for a couple of months. And uh, finally, I figured out that I really needed to do more integration work and that I was all up in my head. And I had all these ideas that I needed to really get grounded. And I thought that I would start to build things and that that would be good for me to sort of put out my ideas in the physical world. And I had been a champion uh, handball player in high school and new college uh, didn't, it had this nude swimming pool, which was great. Um, but it didn't have much in the way of athletic facilities. So I talked to my parents and I said, would you donate uh, enough money for thousands? Uh, I think it was three and a half thousand concrete blocks so that I could build a handball court and donate it to the school. 
And I didn't want to be a student, but I wanted to be with my friends and, you know, and my parents said yes. So that got me building things and that was really helpful. So that was my integration process. And then I started a romance and uh, my girlfriend was um, sort of a Southern belle, you could say. Her father was a classic uh, Southern bigot. And here I am, this liberal Jewish guy from the North, you know, dating his daughter who went to Catholic high school and stuff. And uh, but, but he was a contractor and he taught people how to pass the contractor's exam. And um, we, we came up with a plan that I, we would piss him off by asking him to let me take the class for free which, you know, he would, of course, not want to give it to me for free, but he would do it because he would think I would fail. And then he would show that I'm not worthy of his daughter. And so, but I wanted to learn to become a contractor. So in any case, I, I became the youngest and dumbest contractor in Florida. I barely passed the test um, and showed him I was worthy of his daughter. And, and um, so then I built a house when I turned 21. I inherited some money from my parents. I put it into building a house. Um, and I again, uh, ran out of money and didn't finish the house, but it was kind of unusual. And a bunch of people came to me and said, would you like to build for us? And I had my contractor's license and stuff. So that led me into 10 years of integration, basically. And I, every once in a while, I would trip just to kind of test it out, my new strength, you know, could I get past these difficult mo moments? You know, I had more emotions from being in love and from having relationships and all that was helping me. And so finally, after 10 years, I felt like, okay, now I can go back to school. I always knew I was going to, and I could put psychedelics first because I had built some houses for some of the faculty at New College, and I figured they would help me. And also there had been this fella that had uh, retired in Sarasota. Uh, Ed Barker was his name, and he had taught a PhD program at Harvard in psychology and social change. And he had been the lead trainer for the Peace Corps for a while. And he'd also been a politician. He ran health and human services for the city of New York. And he was an incredible therapist. And he did more psychedelics than I did. And he had retired in Sarasota and he was, um, he became uh, my therapist. And then also the faculty really respected him because he'd been in charge of this PhD program at Harvard. So I ended up um, deciding, okay, I'm going to go back to school. I did some meetings with him to say, um, you know, am I crazy to want to focus my life on psychedelics? Keeps seeming to get me in trouble and, you know, am I self-destructive? The world thinks I'm crazy. Do I really want to do this? And he said, no, you know, it, it, you know, you, it, it does make sense in certain ways. If you really want to do that, you should do it. So I said, okay, I'm going to go back to college. And the very first thing that I did is I need to create a curriculum to become a psychedelic psychotherapist. Because the school taught psychology, but it didn't teach anything about psychedelics. And psychedelic research was wiped out all over the world, too. So I thought, okay, the very first thing I'm going to do is go back to Esalen. Well, I'd never been to Esalen before. But to go to Esalen and be with Stan Groff for a, a month-long workshop, which was on the mystical quest. So this is now September of 1982. So this is 10 years and a half after I dropped out. And um, I'm back again with Stan for the first time in 10 years. And I had... In this decade, I'd read all sorts of books, all the books on psychedelics that I could read. But I had thought that the whole field was dead, that, you know, the research was wiped out. And, and from my perspective, I completely missed the idea that there was this incredibly vibrant underground community of psychedelic therapists that didn't stop when the research was criminalized 
that there was not a lot of them, but there were people that were still doing underground psychedelic therapy and they kept the flame alive. And while I was at Esalen for this month long workshop, this woman, Debbie Harlow comes along and she says that um, there's a new drug that's called Adam. And would I be interested in trying it? And she said, oh, it helps you feel love and it helps you feel connected and helps you a better listener. And you can talk to people better. And and I was like very dismissive because I was like, hey, I'm in love and I, I'm, you know, um, I can talk to people. Oh, I'm a real good listener. And, you know, well, I'm fine. And then I saw a group of people sitting in a circle doing MDMA and they were talking to each other. Uh, and I was like, so, you know, you take 250 micrograms of LSD and you can't even talk. You know, you're deep in. So I thought, how meaningful can this be? It's really superficial you know so i wasn't impressed um but i like to say that i was stupid enough to underestimate it but smart enough to buy some so i um, went ahead and um, bought some and brought it home and um did it in uh just a week or two after i was home um did it with my girlfriend and i was just stunned how profound it was mm even though we could talk to each other, it was just amazing. And, and there was one thing that had happened. Um, you know, I was practicing to be a psychedelic therapist. And so on the weekends, uh, those of us at the workshop with Stan, sometimes we'd sit for each other for um, psychedelic sessions to get some practice. And, and during the week, we'd talk about it as, oh, I had a dream. And, you know, we didn't want to get Stan in trouble. We'd say, oh, we had a dream. And this is what happened during my dream. So. So um, there was this woman that was my age, basically very attracted to her. And she asked me to sit for her for an LSD trip, which I did. And um, it was very good for her, very intimate, but not sexual in any way. Um, but as a present, she gave me this gold necklace to wear. All right. So I come home from Esalen with this gold necklace from another woman. And when I'm um, doing MDMA with my girlfriend, what we were able to do was talk about this, um, where did this gold necklace come from? And how, how did, you know, what was my relationship with this other woman? And, and it just was like, it could have been kind of difficult territory to navigate, but it wasn't. It was something where the MDMA gave us this ability to be peaceful, to accept ourselves, to be loving, to kind of share openly in a non-threatening and non-threatened way. And I just thought this is like a minefield sometimes for relationships, but we were able to navigate this very well um, and then get to the sense of how deep we love each other and how much we love each other. And it was just magnificent. So that was my first MDMA experience. And that made me realize that I had learned about LSD and mescaline and their value after the backlash. But now I was learning about MDMA before the backlash, because what Debbie had said is there's this new drug called Adam, which was the code name for it used in underground circles. But she said it had also been escaped from these circles and it was being sold um, as a party drug called ecstasy. So again, Nancy Reagan, just say no. It was clear that it was doomed because the more it's being used in public, there would be this reaction. But I thought, aha, now I'm learning about it ahead of the curve and I can do stuff to try to protect it and learn about it and introduce it to a lot of people. And that's what began my political work. Wow. And so how does MDMA differ from classic psychedelics? Well, um, 
let me give you a good example then. So, um, in uh, 1984, I went back to Essen and spent a month-long workshop with Stan and Christine again. And this was called the Spiritual Emergence Network. So it's about how sometimes the midlife crisis, people break down and it, it gets pathologized, but sometimes it can be a force for healing. It's for growth. It's the old systems aren't working. And so I learned about that. And uh, as part of my learning about um, working with psychedelics. So... Um, when I came back from that workshop, um, within a few days, uh, a friend of mine contacted me and he said that um, I had um, sold him some MDMA that he had done with his girlfriend, who I'd never met before. And during that experience, she had had uh, memories of past sexual assault and rape and almost being killed come up, and she was unprepared to deal with it. She had previously been in mental institutions because of this and been medicated and all, but this time, um, she felt that these experiences were so raw that she ended up um, checking herself into a mental institution to avoid hurting herself. They stabilized her with drugs, and they, after five or six days, she was out. But she was more um, depressed than ever. These drugs she knew weren't going to help her, and she was very suicidal. So my friend said, could you work with her? And I was like, I'm not qualified. I, she's suicidal. It's too delicate. But he said she's got no other options, and I realized that. So I said, all right. I talked to her. I said, if you don't. If you promise not to kill yourself, we can work together. And she promised. Okay, so now how is LSD and MDMA different? Or how's MDMA different? So the first thing that we did was uh, an MDMA session. And I talk about this in the, my TED Talk. But the, the first was an MDMA session. And what it was was like a tour of all of her traumas of her life. So MDMA is very gentle. It doesn't... Um, dissolve your sense of self in the same way that the classic psychedelics do. It reduces fear, reduces activity in the amygdala, helps you to think more carefully, um, enhances activity in the frontal cortex. It releases oxytocin, which is the hormone of nursing mothers of love and connection and, and bonding. Um, so it has all those properties. And so this was a tremendous situation for her. MDMA is what had catalyzed these, these terrible memories and so now we were doing MDMA in a more therapeutic context, but I felt like it was just a tour of all of her traumas, but it didn't get to the core of the mm -hmm. issues. It wasn't enough. And so I thought, okay, now we're going to switch to LSD. And we talked about it. So the, about two weeks later, we decided we'd do an LSD therapy experience with her. And so under the influence of LSD, which has this um, ability to dissolve the ego, dissolve the sense of self, but it doesn't have the fear reduction properties that you get from MDMA. So she was now transformed, transported, you could say, to a different planet, and there was uh, double suns. There was two suns on this planet, and that she was baking to death, and that this was this horrible experience and terrifying and she was stuck and she just couldn't get past it. And it's just unclear what we would do. And then it was just, you know, four or five hours into this LSD trip and it was um, 350 micrograms. So it was a big dose of LSD and she just got really stuck. And so I kind of thought, Hey, let's give half a dose of MDMA. Maybe that'll help. And it was the transformative moment. So what MDMA did is by adding this fear reduction part of it, it made it so that she could process what had previously been overwhelming. And 
the double suns collapsed into one sun and it collapsed into the incident where she had been raped and beaten up and left out in the sun. So it turned from something symbolic that was representing something too painful to remember into the MDMA, softening it, reducing the fear and helping it to be from her life that she could process. So the classic psychedelics to have this effect, they're reducing the sense of self, the default mode at network activity. But MDMA doesn't do that to that extent. MDMA does more this reduction of activity in the amygdala, where we process fear, the bonding. So some people have said even that um, MDMA doesn't deserve to be called a psychedelic, you know. And so it, it depends on how much you want to quibble about vocabulary. The word psychedelic was invented by um, Humphrey Osmond in dialogue with um, Aldous Huxley. And they were sending poems back to each other, trying to figure out a new word because the word hallucinogen didn't quite do it. You know, it, it, it's more than a hallucination. There was another word, psychotomimetic, which is means it mimics psychosis. But there's more to it than that. So they're trying to come up with another word. So um, what happened is that Humphrey Osmond um, created this poem. He said, um, let's see, it is um, to sink to hell or soar angelic, just take a pinch of psychedelic. So meaning it can take you anywhere, whereas MDMA, again, takes you more into the loving spaces. From there, you can go into the pain. Um, but psychedelic means mind manifesting. So I think that holotropic breathwork, hyperventilation, dreams are mind manifesting. It doesn't even need to be a drug. So I have a broader word for psychedelic. Marijuana is psychedelic. MDMA is psychedelic. Ketamine can be psychedelic in low doses, even though in fuller doses, it's called a dissociative anesthetic. So anything that sort of manifests what's inside in a way that you wouldn't have accessed it otherwise mm -hmm. at that moment. So I think that the main distinction I would say between um, MDMA and, and the classic psychedelics, and, and I'll go back to using kind of uh, celestial metaphors. So this idea of uh, LSD, it really um, helps you realize that, that your ego is not the center of the universe. The earth is not the center of the universe. You know, we revolve around something bigger, this bigger self with a capital S, you know, all of evolution and humanity. And we're just a blip here. It's part of this enormously bigger story. So it sort of takes us, uh, dissolves us, our sense of uh, self as the center of the universe and the earth as the center of the universe. Okay, what MDMA does is, I would say, in some ways, the opposite. It sinks you deeper into yourself. And you become so comfortable and accepting of yourself that then you can, with this sense of comfort, see the wider world. And that you end up at the same place, that I'm not the center of the universe. But you get to it either by dissolving your sense of self or by accepting yourself so much that you can acknowledge that there's so much more going on than just our own individual life, death, you know, birth, death, transition. Mm -hmm. And so... It's uh, they're complementary and different, and and I think the psychedelic medicine of the future will be that people may get MDMA sessions at certain times, then they may get psilocybin or LSD. We'll also do MDMA LSD or MDMA psilocybin or MDMA ketamine or MDMA 5-MeO DMT combinations. There'll be a lot even with ayahuasca. I've talked to people who have done MDMA with ayahuasca. 
so it, it cuts the fear. It opens one's heart up. Um, and so um, it's just a, it's another approach to psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. Okay. And so for people listening, I know a lot of people who listen to this podcast want to play some influential role in the psychedelic movement. I mean, I'm Mm -hmm. curious from your perspective of how much the therapy side or part of psychedelic assisted therapy is necessary for transformation to occur. You know, for people who want to be trained, but they don't necessarily want to go through the roots of getting a master's in psychology, for example, you know, how necessary is that component part of the, the supportive role as, as someone who wants to help support people through psychedelic journeys? Well, I don't think it's essential. And so I do think that we have, I think it's helpful, but not essential, or it can be extremely helpful. And in certain cases, that therapeutic frame may be essential because people need so much support. But the the basic approach that we have is that we're working on drug development to make psychedelics into approved prescription medicines. And we're also working on drug policy reform so people can access this on their own. And what we want to do is make it so that people have honest drug education instead of like the D.A.R.E. program where, you know, you get told lies by police officers about how terrible these drugs are. Um, We want people to access pure drugs. We want to educate the public in peer support and also in this understanding that rather than running away from difficult things, you need to um, embrace them and open up to them and let out the feelings. And so I think there's an enormous amount of self-medication, self-healing, personal growth that can take place outside of the therapist's office. So much so that these drugs should be legally available to people Mm. without therapy. On the other hand, I think that the more problematic people's um, issues are, the more important it is that they have a safe, supportive environment by people knowing the um, extremes to which... um, you can go, you know, you can, like with Marcella, as I described with the MDMA, where she got stuck. You know, people can get stuck with fear and they don't know how to get past it. Mm. Or they, mm-hmm. you know, they, they have experiences that don't make sense to them and they, they hold back instead of going into them. So that what, what Stan Groff has said, which is a, a beautiful thing, is the um, full expression of an emotion is the funeral pyre of that emotion. Meaning that if you feel like you're stuck forever in hell and you're never going to get out, the full experience of the despair of that is the way is the doorway out. Once you fully accept something, it will change, and it's the resistance that keeps something going. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that with grief, a lot of times you can have terrible grief, but if you can let out the grief, you know it's not like the grief goes away, but you can move on. You you can. You know, it's not the whole of the story, it's the part of the story. So I think that we need to make it recognized so that, uh, well, let me, let me tell a super quick story. So this is um, two women about 15 years ago, more or less, within the same week came to us with two different stories, but both very similar. Both of them had taken MDMA at a rave. And one of them said, I took MDMA with a rave, a bunch of friends. I, I had this MDMA experience. It brought back memories of sexual abuse. My friends were out to party. I knew they didn't want to hear anything about it. They just wanted to have a good time. I stuffed my feelings. And months later now, I'm feeling worse. And I think that MDMA has hurt me. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, 
well, it's not the MDMA. It's the fact that in the context, you repress those emotions when you should have dealt with it. This other woman um, said, hey, I took MDMA at a rave. I had all these memories of past sexual abuse. And I went off into a corner with a girlfriend and we spoke about it for an hour and I cried and, and it was helpful. And now I went back to the party and I danced and now I feel great. And I think maybe MDMA would be good for PTSD. So it's once stuff comes to the surface, it's what you do with it. And if you process it, um, you can get better. And so this was a woman who took it outside of a therapeutic setting and still got a lot of benefit from it. So mm-hmm. I think that's what we need for equity too. A lot of people don't have insurance, can't afford it. Plus they may not want to go to a therapeutic setting. People should be free to do this on their own. And we need to educate them as much as possible so that these experiences outside of therapy, outside of religion can be as uh, beneficial as possible. Yeah. And so what do you think was really the turning point in your, you know, you've been sort of fighting the good fight for decades at this point. And and what was really the turning point to initiate some of the trials that you've been doing with MAPS and more political acceptance and openness and even working with the FDA that's now open to these trials? I mean, what what was really the, the shift? Well, the shift has to do with AIDS, actually. So it's in the the 1980s, and AIDS is a death sentence, and all these people are dying of AIDS, and there's, uh, you know, AIDS-wasting syndrome and stuff like that. And then a group called ACT UP was created that what they felt was going on was that the FDA was being too slow to permit new drugs, and that they were being overly emphasizing risks of drugs and not really properly focusing on the potential benefits, too, particularly for diseases that were life-threatening or life-ending, that, that there needed to be more drug development. And so ACT UP actually went to Washington and picketed the FDA headquarters. And it was very embarrassing for all these you know, people of the FDA. Now there's direct action against them for doing things. And so what happened in 1990, well, in late 1989, 1990, is that the FDA created a new division, a new group to try to review drugs faster to figure out how to do that. And they called it the pilot drug evaluation staff. The pilot test, new ways to evaluate drugs, the pilot drug evaluation staff. And this new staff needed drugs to work with. And so they looked around the FDA and they tried to gather pain meds. They got their authority, but they looked at the group that had squashed psychedelic research for several decades And they said, hey, give us the Schedule One drugs. And that group, um, led by this guy, Paul Lieber, who was really good at squashing psychedelic research, he said, sure, we'll give you the psychedelics. And so they wanted to demonstrate this group at the FDA that they could um, review drugs in a different way, in a more efficient way. And so they needed examples. So they decided to open the door to psychedelic research. And it's not that they were pro-psychedelic, but they were pro-science and pro-experimenting. And so in 1990, they gave Rick Strassman permission to work with DMT. Mm. And then we were I was working with Charlie Grobe to do a study with MDMA with cancer patients with anxiety. Um, I knew MDMA was great for PTSD, but um, there was all this neurotoxicity concerns and one dose, permanent brain damage, major functional consequences, all these things we know are not true, but that was the concern. And we thought if we work with cancer patients who are about to die, Nobody can object to give us permission uh, to do the research. So 
anyway, FDA decided to have this special meeting in 1992 formally to decide whether to open the door to psychedelic research. They had advisory committee meeting. The National Institute on Drug Abuse had their animal researchers with psychedelics meet for two days before that, and they decided to open the door to psychedelic research. So when I look at the turning point, what was the key moment that has now led to where we're at? It was this 1992 meeting of the FDA that said, we are going to start approving research with psychedelics, but we will hold it to the same standards of any other drug that we evaluate, but we will not squash it anymore. And it's from that beginning at the FDA that has led to this renaissance in psychedelic research. How many research papers have been written since 1992 in this post-Nixon era of research? Yeah. Well, if you go into Medline, that's the way to tell it, PubMed, you know, Mm -hmm. it's the world's repository of uh, scientific medical literature, and you put in uh, MDMA or ecstasy, there's over 5,000 papers. Wow. It's MDMA or ecstasy. Most of these are um, about the risks of MDMA, almost all of them, except for a few studies like ours. Um, But there's a great um, slide. I don't know if if you can illustrate this with the podcast with slides, but there's this incredible slide that goes back to uh, before 1950, and it's the number of scientific publications about about psychedelics. And what it shows is that there is um, a peak you know, there's not hardly anything in the 1950s. And then near the end of the 50s, it starts to increase. And then you get this dramatic increase. So that at the end of the 60s, early 70s, there's more than 100 papers every year being published about psychedelics. But that's when the backlash hits. And then the scientific papers diminish for the next uh, 20 years or so, almost to nothing. And the ones that are published are all about the risks of psychedelics. And then we have the FDA opening the door in 1990 and 1992 formally to psychedelic research. And since then, there's been an ever-increasing number of papers. And so in the last couple of years, there was five or 600 papers per year. Wow. There's an explosion of scientific papers. So we are really not just um, at a renaissance of psychedelic research, but we are at a place where we're further ahead than at any point ever before, mm. well beyond the 60s. Mm. And now MAPS has a study that's in phase three. So we're about, there's about uh, three or 400 psychedelic for-profit companies now doing a variety of different things. The only one that's in phase three research is MAPS. We finished one phase three study and we're in the midst of the second and the results were great. There are several companies that are doing psilocybin research that are near, near the ending of phase two. Um, and in, in a year or so, they, they may start to work on phase three. So we're, we're at this um, enormously pivotal moment where, uh, you know, we talked about integration before for your own personal psychedelic experience. It's basically taken society 50 years to integrate the 60s mm. and all of the things that came forth during the 60s. So, you know, when death and birth and spirituality and meditation, all of those things were sort of hidden away in the 50s and 60s. Uh, women were tranquilized to give birth. Men were not allow, allow, allowed in the delivery room. You didn't talk about if people had cancer or, or, you know, the first hospice was 1974. Now we have about 6,000 hospices. We have uh, birthing centers all over the place. Men are allowed in the delivery rooms. It's Women are not tranquilized as much. It's a whole different thing. And when uh, 
the Beatles brought Maharishi Mahesh Yogi to bring meditation to America. You know, these weird guys in robes and beads and, you know, and, and if you did yoga, people thought you were going to be part of another religion. Now the YMCA teaches yoga. Mindfulness is everywhere. So you look at art and music, you know, imagery and movies. You have all these psychedelic imageries. So basically it's taken society 50 years to integrate psychedelics. And I think we're on the doorway of the real mainstreaming of psychedelics into our culture. And I think, as I said before, how the culture is really more important than the experience itself, that we will be changing the culture. And mm. the culture will be to explore, to open up, to feel. We've got an explosion of mental health as, as problems. Um, and so I think there's a great recognition of the new approaches that are needed. Mm -hmm. well, I, I think that within the next 10 years, we're probably going to have, you know, three to 5,000 or more psychedelic clinics just in America. Wow. Wow. And when we look at the totality of all the studies that have been done, I mean, it seems like we're almost always looking at psychedelics through the lens of mental illness, primarily the big four, PTSD, depression, addiction, and anxiety. I'm curious what your thoughts are in terms of the way that that influences how we understand psychedelics. And if you have any thoughts on the next wave of what psychedelic uh, research might look at. Well, I'm so glad you asked that question. That's really, really good. Um, where we're starting to move now is uh, the mind-body connection. So uh, irritable bowel syndrome, fibromyalgia, there's all sorts of pain. There's all sorts of things that are have some physiological base, but also have a lot of psychological components too. So w the ones that you've talked to before, the big four, are, are more like mental illnesses, but now we need to be moving more into mind-body connections. And you know, we know for sure how strong the placebo effect is. You know, that, that you think something is happening and you kind of will yourself into that. But I think the next big um, discoveries over the next 20, 30 years are going to be how do we understand these levers whereby we can stimulate our own immune system? Mm. We can, you know, how can we sort of um, catalyze the placebo effect at will? Mm. Mm. Which is so funny that you're saying that because that that study came out about that was just, you know, ruffled a lot of feathers about, oh, my microdosing is just placebo. And I was actually speaking on a panel at Meet Delic and someone brought that up right away. And I thought maybe we should stop demonizing the placebo and start celebrating it and start understanding it and then look at how we can work with psychedelics to enhance the placebo effect of the way that our minds influence our bodies. You're totally right. That's exactly where we need to go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, placebo effect is like, oh, well, you're tricking yourself. Well, but how are we doing that? And mm -hmm. can we do that consciously? Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's amazing. So I, I think the other areas that we're going to look at are, um, you know, how can we sort of motivate our own immune system to be more active? Mm. You know, you hear occasional stories about people that have psychedelic experiences and get over cancer. This or that. There's stories about people going to ayahuasca experiences and, you know, and maybe that's coincidence, but maybe there are some ways that we get into these parts of our mind where we can really um, enhance the activity of our immune system or something like that. Okay. The other area that we really need to be getting into is group therapy. Mm -hmm. So what we're doing now is individual therapy. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the native American church, peyote ceremonies, those are in groups, the, Ayahuasca are in groups. 
So we really need to explore group therapy a lot more. Mm-hmm. And I think also over time, what we're going to explore is not so much MDMA for this, psilocybin for that, 5-MeO-DMT for that, but it's like, let's say for your particular issues, maybe you do a sequence of experiences. You start with MDMA, you go to ketamine, you go to psilocybin or LSD or Ibogaine or you know, but we'll have customized, personalized psychedelic journeys for individual patients that will be discussions between therapists who are cross-trained mm. in the different psychedelic modalities and then what's, you know, the next right thing for you. Mm. And that's what we're going to have to figure out. And so one of the big things the FDA has asked us to figure out, which we don't really know, is how to predict ahead of time who's going to respond and who's not going to respond. or mm. Who's better to go to ketamine? Who's better to go to MDMA? Who's better to go to psilocybin? We don't know that either, if there even is such a thing. So it's trying to figure out really predicting response rates, who's going to relapse, when are they going to relapse? You know, do we get advanced signals so we can treat them before they relapse? There's just an enormous amount of us to, to learn ahead of time. But I would say to get back to the key point about the integration is that and, and this is a concern for me of microdosing, I'll just say, is that the goal for us is to make people so they don't need drugs. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're not for-profit pharma trying to sell it to you so you use it every day. Right. We want to make it so that you become independent. You've solved your problem. Mm-hmm. And maybe you keep doing psychedelics for other things, for personal growth, for spirituality, but you don't need it for your depression or your PTSD or your... Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, anxiety or your addiction, you know? So I think that's the key emphasis is how do we really um, move forward, help people to be um, the people that they want to be, but also more independent of needing to take a drug in that way to be that. So I think for any kind of um, creativity or inspiration, um, microdosing can be really good for that. Mm. Yeah. I'm kind of curious your thoughts because uh, my sort of, prediction is that the looking at the intersection between psychedelics and creativity is going to be another big wave of psychedelic research. Right now, out of all the studies, there's really less than a dozen that look at creativity. Yeah. Well, and the ones that have haven't worked out. And what they've said is that um, there's sort of a, well, the blame is on the measurements, you know, who's volunteering, how creative are they, how sensitive are the measures? Can you really detect incremental increases in creativity? Um, that, that's why some of the early work that um, Jim Fadiman, mm-hmm. who's now a big advocate for uh, microdosing and a researcher of that, you know, they did some early work with uh, mescaline and with um, LSD to help people do problem solving. Mm-hmm. So they had them bring in intellectual problems that they were working on and then under the influence of psychedelics, try to continue to work with them and see them in different ways. So I think that's an actually a really good way to do it. You get people are stuck. Now, how do they get unstuck? And then if they do, then that's a bit of evidence that they were able to do that under the influence of psychedelics. Mm, Yeah. It's an area that I'm really interested in. And that's what I'm actually completing my graduate degree in is creativity and change leadership. And I'm looking at the intersection between psychedelics and creative problem solving specifically towards leadership development. But I, I would even point out that the what you described as your 10 year integration of focusing on building, that that's actually yeah. leveraging creativity to help you integrate your experiences. 
And so yeah. really kind of zooming out and looking at the larger narrative of how we even understand creativity and how we can implement that and work with that within the framework of integration and set and setting to help spiritual development. Yeah. Now, you know, you bring up another point in my mind that, that we haven't talked about yet in terms of this, uh, you know, psychedelic leadership, you could say, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so we're doing there. It turns out that there are Israelis and Palestinians that are doing ayahuasca and MDMA again mm. and trying to use those non-ordinary states of consciousness for them to get over their um, prejudices and fears and resistances to really trying to form human bonds with people who are on the other side. And then to try to bring that out to this larger cultural context to see if there are ways that um, small groups of people can um you know, demonstrate that you don't have to hate the other person or, or something. So I think over time, you know, it's not just going to be for individual kind of um, clinical indications, mm. you know, or, or even necessarily for, um, you know, celebration, recreation, self-healing. But this idea of bringing the psychedelic experience into groups that are at odds with each other, or you could say companies even, they're not at odds with each other, but they want to bond deeper and they want to talk about the challenges that they have and how, how do they, um, you know, compete and stay alive, what, what creative ideas that they can get. So I think we'll move even more from over time, not, not abandoning therapy or religion or, or inspiration like that, but, but I think we'll be using them more and more for creativity, for leadership, for um, you know, conflict resolution. Mm. I think that would be a really profound new area of research. Yeah. I really wanted to ask you about the Palestinians and Israelis coming together to drink ayahuasca because it, it really is also the epitome of what we really started with this way that psychedelics are bridge builders and helping people with conflict resolution. And so just if you could speak a little bit about like, what have you seen through this process? Well, let me say that Lior Roseman and uh, Robin Card Harris are doing a lot of this at Imperial College, and um, we're now trying to develop a protocol to do this with a group of people with MDMA, with Israelis and Palestinians. Um, And uh, one of the things that um, we like to joke is that, um, you know, if we can help these Israelis and Palestinians, then we'll come back to America and work on the hardest cases of uh, Democrats and Republicans. Mm. But one of the things that... um, was learned. And just to give an example that's sort of stuck in my mind was one of the Israelis during this ayahuasca ayahuasca experience described his reaction to when um, Arabic music was played. And what he had said was that whenever he had previously heard Arabic music, it reminded him of the enemy and it made him really scared. And he didn't really like this Arabic music. But under the influence of ayahuasca, in an ayahuasca session, when this Arabic music was played, he could see the beauty of it. And he could see that underneath, we're all just humans. This is, you know, we're not Israelis, we're not Palestinians, we're not Muslims, we're not Jews, we're we're just humans. And we have these other characteristics as well, but fundamentally we're humans. And it was listening to this Arabic music that really brought him to this deeper understanding. Now, there still are conflicts and you still have to resolve them. So just feeling connected is only one part of dealing with real conflict resolution. You have to get to the conflicts and try to negotiate them out in a different way. Mm -hmm. 
Tammies are the most open open minded of the people from each side as well. So, you know, I think it radiates out from those people that are most willing to be in these mixed spaces, to cross these boundaries, to be vulnerable with people that are different from them. But eventually they can move to their friends who are more extreme, less comfortable. And eventually, hopefully you get to the hardcore haters on both sides. And maybe then if we can even manage to bring them all into the same room and give them all MDMA or Mm -hmm. ayahuasca. Um, But I think a lot of it begins with people that are willing to do it, willing to review their own sort of prejudices and their own biases and, you know, and, and willing to listen to other people and their concerns. So it's, it's a small kernel of hope, I would say, that we're trying to really begin to explore. And with MDMA, is there, can we say that there's still these windows of heightened plasticity that we see with classic psychedelics? Is that, is that similar? Yeah. Uh, very, very similar. So uh, Gould Dolan is a neuroscientist at Johns Hopkins. And um, you you may have heard of the octopus study. Mm-hmm. Okay, so she did the octopus. Octopus is, for those people that have seen my, uh, uh, my octopus teacher, I think is what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so octopuses are solitary creatures. And they diverged from humans 600 million years ago or so. They have different kinds of brains. Their brains are all in their tentacles as well but they still process serotonin. So Gould wanted to know what happens if you give uh, an octopus MDMA. So we provided her with the MDMA and she did these experiments and lo and behold, under the influence of MDMA, the octopuses wanna hang out with other octopuses mm-hmm. instead of being alone. So what she felt is that it opens up this um, window of, of social reward learning where your brain is more neuro, more plastic. And so then she next did the study in mice and she gave mice MDMA and she noticed that they released oxytocin and the oxytocin promoted new neural connections in new prosocial areas of the brain. So MDMA definitely does produce neuroplasticity. And there's also something called fear extinction and memory reconsolidation. When you sort of reconsolidate a memory um, you're sort of rerouting now how that memory, the next time you remember it, how it goes. So that when you um, work with traumatic memories, if you're able to process them and have a sense that's not happening now, it happened then, you can store it in long-term memory. Then the next time you, mem- you remember it, it's not like it's happening now anymore. It's happened in the past. And you had the sense of peace that you've been able to to deal with it. And so there's, there's rerouting of memories, there's new neural connections. And so I think that's a big part of the explanation of how you can have these very profound in-depth experiences, but they can have long-term implications mm-hmm. if you do the integration work, especially. Mm. And can you just share with people what the phase three clinical trials are focused on and what will be the next phases if this goes through? What's the future look like? Right. Well, um, very good question. too. So phase three is, uh, well, let me say, first off, there's uh, usually you have to do what are called preclinical animal studies just to demonstrate basic safety. Um, Then you get permission to go into humans in phase one. And those are basic safety studies. Those are usually healthy volunteers and you're doing, you know, gathering information about doses, side effects, what it might be good for. For drugs that are particularly dangerous, they don't start in um, fa- in healthy volunteers, but you'll do like phase one, phase two. 
studies. Um, so where you're gathering safety, but you're also looking at patient populations. Phase two are where you start working with the patients of different things and you see if it's helpful. And these are exploratory small pilot studies. You're getting a sense of what's your dose, what's your treatment, who do you include, who do you exclude, what are your measures, how do you do double blind, all these things. And then if you get permission from FDA or other regulatory agencies, you go to phase three. And phase three are the large scale studies, double blind placebo controlled studies where you have to prove safety and efficacy in order to get permission to make them into prescription medicines. Important to note that you don't have to prove mechanism of action. Mm. So what that means is you don't have to know how these drugs work. Mm. If you can show that they work and that they're safe enough, people should have access to them even if their mechanisms are unclear because the brain is super complex. You know, we may never figure it out. Or even if you do, you know, does that affect how well you use it in therapy? Mm. Right. So I think that where we're at with phase three right now is that we've completed the first phase three study. What we showed in, we, we feel that we have to work in the hardest cases because psychedelics are stigmatized and also the hardest cases are those that need the most help. So what that means for us is that we enroll people who previously attempted suicide for their PTSD. Many PTSD studies exclude people who previously attempted uh, suicide. We work with people that are on the dissociative subtype even. That means that one of the strategies for dealing with trauma is to dissociate. You're not there, but then it makes it harder to get healthier again because every time you approach it, you get the feeling it's overwhelming. I can't deal with it. And then you dissociate even more. Um, we worked only with severe cases of PTSD, severe to extreme. And what we did is we compared therapy with inactive placebo versus therapy with MDMA. And it's 42 hours of therapy, three eight-hour sessions of, of MDMA or placebo, and then 12 90-minute non-drug psychotherapy sessions. And what we demonstrated is that in the control group that had PTSD an average of over 14 years, which one-third of the people had PTSD over 20 years, and a third of them, their primary PTSD was from childhood, so they had terrible attachments, they, they weren't safe in childhood. What we showed is that the two-month follow-up for the control group, therapy without any MDMA, 32% no longer had PTSD, which is great, actually. Mm -hmm. In this severe, chronic, treatment-resistant population, that um, a third of them get better, don't have PTSD. But when you add MDMA, 67% no longer have PTSD. And of the one-third that still has PTSD that got MDMA, um, more than half of those had what's called a clinically significant reduction of PTSD symptoms. So their lives are better. And if this self-healing process continues, they might dip down below the level of having PTSD, or if we could give them a forward session, they might. So the results were tremendous. And now we are doing the second phase three study. You need a, a pivotal and a confirmatory phase three study. Um, we're going to finish it, we think, in October of 2022. And if it goes well, we think that we will submit to the FDA in um, early um, uh, 2023 to make it into a prescription medicine. And we think by the end of um, 2023, we'll have both FDA approval and DEA rescheduling so that we can start prescription use. Now, what comes after? That was a really good question as far as what phases come after. And there is something called phase four. And so, and this is something I'm very delighted in a way to, to discuss is that the FDA has said 
that we must do studies in adolescents with PTSD from 12 to 17 year olds. If we succeed in adults, right now we cannot work with people younger than 18. Mm -hmm. The FDA has forbidden us from doing that. And we've tried because we've been approached by people who have uh, adolescents with terrible PTSD, but the FDA won't do it. They'd say, if you can succeed in adults, we will give you permission and we will require you to do pediatric studies. And if that works in 12 to 17 year olds, then it's gonna, we have to go down to seven to 11 year olds. And this is really important because I think moving, treating people closer to the trauma has even more benefits than letting them, you know, go through adolescence traumatized or treating them as young adults or even later. Similarly, we wanna work with more, um, we've worked with over 50 veterans, but we wanna get into active duty soldiers and treat them. We want to get it into police departments and fire departments. And before they get discharged with PTSD, we want to work with them closer to the trauma. So the other things that FDA has said in uh, phase four is that they want us to try to understand how to predict who's going to respond and who's not going to respond. Right now, we don't have a good idea to do that. And then they also want us to look at relapse. Who's going to be relapsing? When can you predict it ahead of time? If you give them one session after they relapse, does that get them back to feeling good. So there's gonna be a lot of work phase four. And then also again, group therapy and other indications of MDMA and mixtures of MDMA with other things or mixtures of treatments. You know, We've been approached by some companies that wanna work with PTSD where they get MDMA first and a month later they get psilocybin. Hmm. And so those are things that we need to explore as well. But when you say prescription, okay, so what does that look like that a doctor will be prescribing MDMA within the context of therapy? Only therapists will be prescribing. What, what does that look like? Well, um, the prescribers will be um, doctors. Usually there's a few places, states where it doesn't need to be. It could be nurse practitioners sometimes, or even psychotherapists can sometimes prescribe things, but there's going to be a uh, distinction. There's going to be prescribers and then there's going to be therapists. And the prescribers may or may not be the therapists. We're going to have a separate, a, a short training for prescribers about the physical problems that you have to be aware of increase in blood pressure, slight increase in temperature, you know, what kind of um, exclusion criteria do we have? So there'll be prescribers, but um, there's going to be the only people that can work with patients are going to be therapists that have been trained in the method that was used to make it into a medicine. Mm -hmm. However, once they've learned that, then by prescription, they don't have to use that exact method. They can innovate, they can add, they can do something, they can use their own personal background skills. And it will be only administered under direct supervision of therapists in a clinic setting. So it's not going to be a take-home drug. It's not mm -hmm. like you get a prescription to go do MDMA at home. Mm -hmm. You should get the ability, we think, separately to buy it legally to go do it at home or to do it at a party or to do it with your romantic partner or however you want to do it. That should legally be available. But by prescription, it's only by trained people, only under direct supervision, only in a clinic setting. Then the other part of it that's going to come along with it is insurance coverage. Mm -hmm. That's the, that's the key advantage is I think more and more people will want to go to do it this way and people will still have to pay their co-pays, but um, the bulk of the expenses will be paid by the insurance companies. 
And for the MAPS training currently, do you, you have to be a therapist, correct, to go through the MAPS training? Well, we generally want therapists, but it's not an explicit requirement because of our two-person team, the first person needs to be licensed as to provide therapy. Mm-hmm. It'd be a clinical social worker or psychiatric nurse or, or you know, psychotherapist of different clients or psychiatrist or all doctors are supposedly permitted to do therapy. Um, so the first person needs to be licensed to provide therapy. The second person does not have to have a license to be a therapist. Mm-hmm. They could be in the program to get a license or they could be, um, they could have a thousand hours of behavioral health experience and not be in a program to get a license. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to try to change that, reduce those hours. Uh, FDA also is requiring them to have a bachelor's degree. We don't think that's necessary, but we will let people into our training program that don't have licenses to be therapists, but we, we want to know kind of what is their plan. They're going to have to find somebody to work with and mm-hmm. do they have a clinic in mind or, you know, then we have to connect people up or they have to connect themselves to doctors. How does this all work? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but but we are now planning in the next decade to train twenty five thousand therapists. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah, but the sad part is that they're not even going to be able to make a dent at the number of people with PTSD. Right. Right. And so, for people listening, I'm just kind of curious. Like outside of therapy training, uh, what other modalities would you say you would really encourage people to explore and get trained in? whether it's like Hakomi or, you know, somatic experiencing, I'm just kind of curious. I think all of those internal family systems, gestalt therapy, um, you know, massage is really good. I mean, body work is really important. Um, I think people need to be, um, well, we're now funding studies to combine MDMA with prolonged exposure, to combine MDMA with cognitive processing therapy, to combine MDMA with cognitive behavioral conjoint therapy. Mm -hmm. So I think if people learn any kind of form of therapy, that will be helpful. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think this um, idea that um, there are many, many different ways and many different contexts that these um, experiences can be framed in or delivered. Mm -hmm. And we're still trying to figure out which are the most effective or not. Um, but I think that there's going to be a lot of experimentation and we're, we're going to learn a lot more, um, after MDMA and other psychedelics are prescription medicines than we learned before trying to make them into prescription medicines Mm -hmm. as we see what therapists will be doing and how they will work with patients. And also the other training holotopic breath work is really good for people to get. Um, we are starting MAPS psychonaut training. So it's just like, um, I think it's uh, 10 hours or something like that. It's, it's sort of like harm reduction that also how to plan your own trips if you're going to do that. Um, I think that there are um, uh, people should go into flotation tanks, try that out. But I would say the perhaps the most important thing is for people to have their own experiences mm-hmm. with non-ordinary states of consciousness, preferably with somebody sitting for them so that you don't have to pay attention to the outside world. You can dip deeper into it. You're not trying to protect yourself in that way. But I do think people will learn an enormous amount from their own direct personal experiences as well. Mm. And any big gaps that you're seeing in the movement right now that are concerning for you? What are we really missing right now? Um, well, we're missing, um, should I say this? Uh, we're missing government funding, meaning that, you know, 
it's either been philanthropy or for-profit investors. Mm -hmm. For the first time in 50 years, the National Institute on Drug Abuse gave a grant for psychedelic-assisted therapy for uh, uh, an addicted behavior, in this case, nicotine, to Matt Johnson at Hopkins. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm worried about the for-profit companies trying to um, cover the landscape with patents. Mm -hmm. And to try to block other people, not so much for them to patent their original inventions, but to block competitors. Mm-hmm. And I, I saw a really good um, interview um, brief with uh, Elon Musk the other day. And what he was saying is that they put all their patents in the public domain. And he said that the um, the real, com- the true competitive advantage in the technology space will be the rate of your own innovation not the rate at which you slow down other people. Mm. And that the main purpose of patents is to slow down other people. And he said, what you really need to focus on is think of the larger vision, help everybody. He wants to say everybody should get electric cars so they can use his patents for that. We don't patent things. You know, we put out, we're about to publish how we made MDMA into a medicine. I mean, how we made MDMA synthetically, how we, the Mm. synthetic process. Um, Our public, our, um, treatment manuals in the public domain, our protocols, all that we've published. So I think we need to get people to more focus on what their innovations are rather than blocking other people. And so I do worry about the for-profits and the things that they're going to do in that way. Um, But also they may actually discover a lot's new over time. So we we need to welcome them, but be wary. Hmm. I'm kind of curious, you know, because you were just such a visionary, you had just such foresight into what the movement could be, you know, when you think about where the movement's at in 20 years from now, what does that look like to you? Well, um, okay. So we have, uh, yeah, long-term plans for sure. So, uh, you know, I've talked about society, uh, taking basically half a century to integrate the psychedelic sixties. So in 20 years, so let me just, um, sort of go very quickly, which is uh, 2023 end of it. MDMA becomes a medicine. We hope. Um, then in Europe, uh, okay, and it becomes a medicine in Israel, Canada, the United States, Australia, Brazil, and England. A year later, it becomes a medicine throughout Europe, and then we start bringing it all over the world. Psilocybin becomes a medicine for treatment-resistant depression, um, major depressive disorder, 24, 25. We start to see right now there's seven or 800 or so ketamine clinics, Um they will evolve to be, many of them, those that understand the value of therapy and have cross-trained therapists, um, they will become centers, psychedelic centers. So over the next decade, we should have, I think in the end, roughly 6,000 psychedelic um, centers in the United States alone. And there's six, over 6,000 hospice centers at every town big enough to have a hospice, big enough to have a psychedelic treatment center. And then we will have the legalization of marijuana, in more states, we'll have the federal um, giving up uh, criminalizing marijuana in 2025. We're going to have more board drug policy reform, more decrim with psychedelics and other things. And so I think by 2035, um, we will move to uh, the end of prohibition for all drugs and access in some sort of a licensed legalization manner. And, and you know, although if you want to have a religious experience, you shouldn't have to have a license to go to a church or other are the different ways, but to, to do it on your own, I think outside of medicine or outside of religion, I think a licensed legalization is good. 
Meaning if you misbehave, you get punished for your misbehavior, but then you lose your license to buy it. Mm-hmm. And we should do alcohol like that if you're um, you know, drunk driver and you lose your driver's license, but you can still go to the liquor store and get in your car and kill people, we should make it harder for you to get liquor too. Mm-hmm. So I think a license could do that for alcohol and other things. Um, I think what's going to happen starting 2035, where we get into um, more um, widespread availability, um, that then over the next 15 years beyond that. So when you said 20 years, that's, uh, you know, 2041 or 2042. Um, But I'm thinking more by 2050, we will have had um, legalization and we will have had another 15 years or so of thousands of psychedelic clinics, of more people having um, these experiences on their own. And we're going to have the pressures of climate change and authoritarianism and things. And so I think what we will hopefully see is enough of a spiritualized humanity that we will be able to build enough bonds with people that we will come up with collective solutions to the challenges that we face as a human species. Because if we don't have collective solutions, we're all going down. Mm-hmm. It's clear you can, um, you know, reduce your carbon footprint to zero, but if nobody if everybody else is putting out more carbon, we're going to destroy the environment. We're going to have climate refugees. You know, so I think that the the psychedelic experience encased in more open cultural dynamics where it's not so much um, accommodating with dominating, you know, religious structures or something that, that we will have a flourishing of humanity. And, uh, and I think by 20, 70, we should have this fully uh, humanized, uh, spiritualized humanity, or else we might not be here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you will go down in the books as just a pioneer in this movement who played such a huge influential role. So it's well, it's really remarkable to witness your journey, Rick. Thank you. You know, it's more like a relay race. And I sort of feel like I got the uh, baton from Stan Groff, who got it from Albert Hoffman and Sasha Shulgin. And, you know, I'll pass it on to others. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's just this collective relay race. Yeah. And I would just love to end on this question of just asking you if you have any heartfelt advice for people who are really also feeling the call like you did years ago to really contribute to the psychedelic movement in a good way. Um, within the context of, of psychedelic leadership? Yeah, well, you know, there's an archetype called the wounded healer. You know, this idea that um, we're all wounded and those people that can heal themselves in some way or, or get healed by others, but they see this healing process, then they have the special ability to empathize with others who are wounded and have the confidence that they know that they've healed. So I think the question, you know, for everybody to address is where are your own wounds and how do you work as deep as you can to heal them? And then from that, you know, work to heal others. And, and when we think about what we need in the psychedelic ecosystem going forward, um, I would say that the most important thing is more therapists. So for people that are so inclined to do that, but I think there's other ways for psychedelic leadership, you know, drug policy reform. There's a lot of important things that can be done there. businesses operating businesses in a more public benefit rather than profit maximizing way. So we need psychedelically informed business people. Mm. 
um, you know, chemists. Maybe, maybe you'll develop some new drugs that are better than the ones we have. I'd be shocked and I'd love to take them if they do. But um, there's a lot of ways to be a leader. But I'd say the most important thing is to look inward at your own uh, wounds and issues and then try to find your own particular point of leverage mm. where you have the most leverage. And that's based on where you've come from, who you are, what your interests are. But I think, um, you know, when I was 18, I managed to say that my point of leverage was focusing on psychedelics. Mm. And, and I feel that that has been um, true, but different people have different points of leverage. And so I'd say, you know, that's a big part of, uh, psychedelic leadership is figuring out what you most want to do, where you're most capable. And um, I don't think we have a whole lot of time and things are pretty dire. So I'd encourage people to um, realize that it's riskier to do nothing than it is to do something. Mm-hmm. And we just have to learn how to learn from our mistakes. And, you know, because doing stuff that's never been done before, it's like one series of mistakes after another. But if you just learn from it and refine what you're doing eventually, you know, we'll succeed. I love that you brought in just the recognition that this is a multidisciplinary approach that we're taking. And for like a whole systems overhaul, you know, we actually need people in finance and economics looking at different approaches. Um, You know, one of the projects that I'm really excited about launching is Grow Medicine that's focusing on plant medicine conservation. These are big issues that we're facing now when we look at the rising demand of psychedelics and ayahuasca and iboga and toad, for example. So I'm so grateful that you highlighted that because this is not just about uh, being a guide or facilitator. And many people, that's not that's not the role that they need to play in this movement. Yeah, well, we need educators. We need uh, psychedelic uh, podcasters. <laughs> well, I'm I'm definitely rising to that occasion. Yeah, and I just I so appreciate you, and also all the education that Zendo Project is putting out. I've read your manuals before, and I love that you make that public, and I love that you want to keep a public domain around what you're developing on the drug side. I mean, it's just just like so incredible to me. Yeah, I mean, really. Um, we're all in it together, you know, and if, um, if we make more money, but then deny more people from getting healed and then somehow or other, we all go down, you know, what have we accomplished? Nothing. Yeah. So it should, the more in the public domain, the better. Mm, I love that approach. Anything else that we didn't touch on that you want to close with? Um, just to say that, um, we would like to build the membership of maps. So starting we have a monthly donation campaign. And so we'd like to encourage people to, um, there's still a need for philanthropy, even with all of these for-profit companies, there's lots of stuff that's non-monetizable, like working with MDMA or other psychedelics in refugee camps or in prisons or people recently paroled or, you know, third world countries where, you know, so that I, I just would like to, um, I guess, make an appeal for people to think about, um, joining team psychedelics and become a monthly donor to maps or a single donor. But um, we really need to um, build our base and um, strong as we go into the future. Okay. And I'll include that link in the show notes. And then for people who are interested in doing the maps training, I know I've looked into it and I'm definitely one of those people that's interested and I'm sure other people are as well. Do you do that once a year and where can people find more information about that? Um, well, we do it more than once a year. And in fact, we're going to have multiple. We're going to alternate next year to doing it online or in person in different places. And so um, 
the, the way to learn more about it is to go to the MAPS website mm-hmm. and under participate, there's about the therapist training program. Mm. And do you incorporate like apprenticeship models in that? I feel like having apprenticeship models is actually really missing in our movement. Well, that's a great point because when we talked about, do you need to be a therapist to go through our training program? Mm. We want the two person team to be ideally like an apprenticeship model where the first person is the licensed therapist. The second person is the apprentice. Awesome. And over time. Yeah. So we want people that don't have licenses to be in the training program. And, you know, there's going to be a lot of pressures from insurance companies to not have the two person model. Mm. And I don't think two people are twice as good as one person, but I think they are better. And so if we can make it more like an apprentice model where the apprentice is getting hours and you know, doesn't need to be get a salary or get some stipend, but not as much as the first person, that's how we can keep the very effective two-person model. Oh, that's wonderful. And so when people come into your program, can they link up with therapists yeah. and make the connection yeah. that way? Yeah. Yeah. But again, because it's a drug, they're also going to link up to the doctors. So it's, so it's going to be kind of a team approach, but the doctor doesn't need to be on site. The doctor just does the screening and the prescribing, and then it can be small private practices. So yeah, we, we definitely want to do the apprentice model. And as we move into group therapy too, that'll be another opportunity for more people to be apprentices. Wonderful. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. And I just love you, Rick. You're just such an amazing human. Every time I see you, I mean, we've only been able to cross paths in person a couple of times now, but I just, you're such a kind-hearted human being, and I'm just grateful for all the work that you've done to pave this path, make it a little bit easier for this next generation. So thank you. Well, I'm super grateful to all my psychedelic experiences that have helped open me up in that way. Mm, wonderful. Okay. Well, thank you. Appreciate your time so much. Great. Bye, Laura. See you soon. Okay. Bye. Hi, friend. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast. I'm so thrilled to have hit episode number 40, and I have learned such an enormous amount along the way. And if you've been benefiting from this podcast as well, I would so appreciate it if you could take a moment to leave me a review on iTunes. If you would like to be in touch, please feel free to send me a message on Instagram at livefreelauraD or reach out through my website at livefreelauraD.com, which is soon to be lauradon.co as I am going through a pretty major branding and site overhaul, which will be released hopefully within the next couple of weeks. I'm going to leave you with this song called Strongest Medicine by Kevin Paris and Casey Kelmanson. Once again, my name is Laura Dawn, and you're listening to the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast. Until next time. I've been asleep for way too long, chasing the paper, burning down. Hey, hey. Said success would come, but one more zero and I'm still not. Hey, hey, hey. What did I have to show? Nothing and problems, no healing. This story's getting low. There's only one thing that we're needing.
show Shake out the sickness, let water's built in Take you up higher, higher now Because what do you wanna show? House full of things in your heart half full Choose what you wanna see Cause you are enough, you are everything Diamonds fast 